Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Lexicon Valley is sponsored by The Great Courses, offering engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Explore a collection on great masters about well-known musicians and composers. And right now, get up to 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 67, a new installment of Linguafile, wherein we discuss a mystery word or phrase with lexicographer Ben Zimmer. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing, buddy? Splendid. Thank you. And yourself? I'm great. I'm great. How are you, Ben? I'm doing fine here. I, I'm perfectly splendid, too. Oh, that's great. We're all splendid. I'm not splendid. I'm great. Before <laughs> we begin, I want to congratulate both of you and thank the Academy of Podcasters, which held recently its first ever award ceremony. There were 15 categories, everything from spirituality and religion to business to comedy. We, Lexicon Valley were nominated in the ideas and education category. That sounds very lofty. We were nominated alongside nine other really wonderful shows, including Backstory, which was created by our friend and colleague Tony Field, and the one and only Grammar Girl and her tips for better writing. And we won. Mm -hmm. It's true. Uh, We just wiped up the floor with those lesser podcasts. And, you know, I took some satisfaction in that because uh, while a minor participant in Lexicon Valley, the idea of these people getting any audience whatsoever instead of us has always infuriated me. And I'm, I'm glad that they have to live in their own humiliation. So, yeah. Well, my take is a bit more magnanimous than that. Mm-hmm. I don't think that there will ever be an opportunity in my life ever again to say I'd like to thank the Academy. So I'm <laughs> going to just say that I would like to thank the Academy. It's an honor. And and the award is absolutely wonderful. Bob, you are in the studio here at Slate with me. Can you describe it? Yeah, it's a chrome-plated old-timey microphone. Uh, it looks like something that Fiorella LaGuardia probably had in front of his face when he was reading the funny papers at the WNYC studios during the newspaper strike in the Depression era in New York. And it's a solid thing. It weighs probably five or six pounds. It's it's hefty. I should say, we have been told that we won the award. Andy Bowers, our boss of bosses, brought this back from San Diego, I think, the award ceremony. Fort Worth, I believe. Twin Cities. Yeah, yeah. Twin Cities. I'll tell you, that San Diego-Fort Worth International Airport is sprawling. <laughs> <laughs> I stand corrected. Anyway, he brought it back, and it's a fantastic trophy, but... Our name isn't on it, so which opens up the possibility. I'm not making any accusations here, but it does open up the possibility that we didn't win anything. <laughs> and Andy and just made off just with one w- of the trophies? Walked off with one of the trophies. It's within the realm of possibility. Well, I feel that I know Andy pretty well at this point. I've known him for years now, and he's always seemed like a stand-up guy to me. I don't know. It's possible, but I think it's unlikely. 
I think you can get Slate to engrave that for you, so then you'll really know it's yours. Yeah, that's a good idea. Okay, well, enough self-congratulations here. Thanks again to all of the nominees and to the Academy of Podcasters. We are very, very grateful. Ben, what is our clue for today? What is our clue? Yes. Well, to borrow a line from the Beatles, here's another clue for you all. The walrus was Paul. Goo-goo-gajoob. Yeah, it was referencing I Am the Walrus, but it's one of those sort of very meta Beatles songs. Glass Onion, it was on the White Album, playing with Beatles fans who were trying to read too much into the lyrics. Okay, the word that we're looking for today can be formed by adding a letter to the name of one of the Beatles. Hmm. Adding a letter just straight on. Gringo. Oh, Oh. Bob got it right away. (laughs) Mike was still asking questions, and it just popped right into Bob's head. That was impressive. I just want to point out that my first thought was for George, (laughs) but I I didn't say that one out loud. Right. So add a G to Ringo, you get gringo. Gringo. I like to leave the definitions of these words to Bob because he does such a great job with them. Gringo, Bob. How would you Gringo in North Americano. It's a derisive or widely understood to be a derisive word for Yankees, for people from the United States, uttered by those south of the border, mainly Mexico, and that's the deal. I will add, and I often make an addendum to your definitions, that when I was in South America and when I was in Mexico, those words seemed to be used almost matter-of-factly, not even with the idea that they were insulting you. It's just that's what you are. You're a gringo. And so I've always taken it to be derisive, but I'm not sure that people who use it most often think of it that way. And I must say, I vaguely remember having at some point been disabused of the notion that it's a common slur, being told, no, no, that's not actually the slur for Americans. The slur for Americans is, and then I got some other word. Something much worse. (laughs) Yeah, much, much worse. Right. Well, I've always thought of it as, say, for example... This is a word that I'm very familiar with having grown up in northern New Jersey, the word guido, which Mm. we used both in a derogatory way and matter-of-factly to describe a certain often Italian, often Working class, unsophisticated. There is no way, Mike, to (laughs) run away from the, the fundamental derisiveness of these terms, whether they're reclaimed by the cohort of guidos or not. Guidos and guidettes. And guidettes, exactly. They began as an unflattering stereotype. Well, I'll just leave it at this. I used the word guido early on in my relationship with my wife, and she was horrified. I was like, oh, that guy's a guido. And she was like, Mike, that... You can't say that. And I was like, no, no, I'm from New Jersey. It's okay. Like, that's what we call those people. I'm related to some of them. Don't worry about it. So, okay. Gringo, yeah, might be in that category. Maybe not. In any case, I don't think I have any clue as to the origin of this word. Uh, I'm going to guess, and this is really a wild guess, I'm going to guess that it dates to no earlier than the early 1900s. My guess is that it has something to do with military forces during the uh, Mexican War and their uniforms. Now, I understand that green is verde in Spanish. Maybe they weren't even green back then. Maybe they were blue, but (laughs) that's my guess, and I'm going to stick with it. You know, that's probably a a good guess because it seems like 90% of the words that Ben has brought to us have had either 
a military origin or something to do with boxing or horse racing, right? <laughs> That's true. And, and sometimes all or three. Or some combination, <laughs> yes. <laughs> the military boxer or whatever, yes, right. right. So, <laughs> well, you know, In fact, Bob, it's given I... me the heebie-jeebies how often that happens. <laughs> Bob, it sounds to me like you may have heard uh, popular etymology at some point because you're talking about the Mexican-American War, you're talking about military forces wearing green uniforms. And this is actually, you're sort of keying into one of the popular etymologies that surrounds gringo, and there are many of them. Yes, there is a tale that says that there were green uniforms or green coats that American troops wore during the Mexican-American War, and that might have led locals to say, green go home or something like that. Yeah, and you know, now that you mention it, Ben, that may not have been just my speculation, maybe somewhere hidden in the crevices of my memory. As you know, I'm the oldest living American. Maybe (laughs) it lurked there, this uh, popular etymology from something or other way back when, or this morning. (laughs) Could have been from this morning. This is the kind of word that has stirred up lots of etymologizing, lots of people trying to figure out where it came from. And there are some very colorful stories surrounding it, literally colorful, with the color green involved. I think that the actual story behind it is just as interesting. We'll get to that, but let's talk about the popular etymologies first. Wait, so is this actually a word for which we do know the true one and only etymology? We have a pretty good idea, but there have been so many sort of folkloristic tellings of where this word came from that it's worth sort of exploring (laughs) a little bit. And you know what? That makes perfect sense, Ben, because I spend a lot of time with folk and they often (laughs) share their lore. Exactly. So that's probably exactly (laughs) what happened. So another very popular story that is attached to the word gringo, again, goes back to the Mexican-American War and those soldiers who would have been marching through Mexico And one version of the tale is that they were singing marching songs and that one of the marching songs was Green Grow the Rushes O, an old English folk song or traditional song. The Mexicans heard these Americans singing this song with this chorus where the first two words are green grow and not understanding the lyrics or, you know, what they were singing, just heard those words over and over again and then just started calling them gringos as a kind of a altered form of those two words from the song. This story is a very popular one and continues to be repeated up to the present day. You can find this all over the Internet as an explanation for where gringo comes. On both sides of the border? I'm talking about sort of English language sources that will tell you this story. Okay. When the story is told, like all good folklore, it often mutates. Most typically, though, it takes place there in the Mexican-American War in the 1840s. But the song that they were supposedly singing, that often changes because those words green grow actually appear in a number of different songs. So there's this English folk song, Green Grow the Rushes O, which goes, I'll sing you one, oh, green grow the rushes, oh. And gringo was his name, oh, green. That's what it, it's, uh, there we go, oh, never mind. It sounds a little like that, yes. But this is actually is a song, it's like a counting song, sort of like the 12 days of Christmas. So you start with one and then you keep adding onto it from that. But there are various other versions or songs with similar lyrics. One of them was by Robert Burns, the great Scottish poet and lyricist, who took that line, Green Grow the Rushes O, and made his own original composition out of it. 
a very beautiful song called Green Grow the Rashes O. So that's sort of the Scottish pronunciation of rushes. Green grow the rashes O, green grow the rashes O. The sweetest hours that e'er I spend are spent among the lasses O. Among the lasses O. A only race me riches chase. Richer still me fly them all. But when at last There's also another song, Green Grow the Laurels, which was a Scots-Irish folk song, which came to America, became something of a cowboy song, and was changed from Green Grow the Laurels to Green Grow the Lilacs. A playwright from Oklahoma named Lynn Riggs wrote lyrics for a song, Green Grow the Lilacs, All Sparkling with Dew, I'm Lonely, My Darling, Since Parting with You. And he used this for a Broadway play that was called Green Grow the Lilacs, and that actually served as the basis for the musical Oklahoma. So all of these different songs that have those words green grow in them have at one point or another been used to explain the word gringo. Oh, it came from the soldiers singing green grow the rushes oh. Oh, no, the Robert Burns song, green grow the rashes oh. Oh, no, green grow the laurels or this, you know, newer American version, green grow the lilacs. These are all stories that circulate you know, as sort of folkloristic explanations for where gringo comes from. So a false etymology proliferating as the opening line of this song proliferated throughout these various different incarnations. Well, it is a fetching explanation, however incorrect. It just seems so intuitive. There does seem to be something very enticing about the explanation, and and we often find this with popular etymologies that have to do with cultural contact between speakers of two different languages coming together and not understanding each other. So I think it's safe to say that this explanation, this etymology we can dispense with. It's not true. We can dispense with it because there's no evidence that any of those songs that use green grow in them were being sung by American soldiers in the Mexican-American War. But what's interesting is that the word gringo really does enter the English language right in the aftermath of the Mexican-American War. We have a couple of examples from 1849 in English language sources. Okay, we will get back to our conversation about gringo in just a moment. Let's take a short break to mention our sponsor, The Great Courses. I've been making my way through their Great Masters lecture series about renowned Western composers, including Tchaikovsky and Mozart and Brahms and the series that I just started about Beethoven. I, like many, I think, came to Beethoven when I was a teenager through the Ninth Symphony, which is very accessible But that really was a gateway for me. It opened up his other symphonies, his piano sonatas in particular, and much else that he composed. What I love about this series so far is that the lecturer, he's a music historian named Robert Greenberg, when he talks about the Moonlight Sonata, you get to hear a piece of it. When he talks about the Missus Solemnis, you get to hear it. It's a great way to absorb the life and works of a composer. It's very textured. And it's filled with so many kind of fun and fascinating details you might expect if you know anything about Beethoven. He was quite a kind of colorful character. One of my favorites so far is, as Greenberg puts it, Beethoven was forever falling in love with women who were unattainable. They were married women. They were engaged. They were aristocratic and wanted nothing to do with him. And in one anecdote, he says that Beethoven proposed to a woman pretty much on the spot. And she later told 
someone that she rejected him because he was, quote, ugly and half crazy. Some of that craziness might, in fact, be a result of his chronic lead poisoning, which we found out in recent decades through testing on his hair, which Greenberg also discusses. Much was written about Beethoven's hair in his own time. It's a really fun listen, and you can order from four of those great masters lecture series, Mozart, Beethoven, Brahms, or Tchaikovsky, for just $9.95 if you go to thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. This is a special price, $9.95 for one of those entire courses. It's only available for a limited time. That's thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. Okay, Ben, you mentioned that there are examples of gringo in English language sources as far back as 1849. What exactly are these sources? Well, the earliest one that we have comes from a diary, June of 1849, that was kept by John Woodhouse Audubon. Okay, so Mm. John Woodhouse Audubon is the son of the famous naturalist and painter of wildlife, John James Audubon. John Woodhouse Audubon was an assistant to his father on various expeditions. You know, this is what they did. They would go around to various places and collect specimens and sketch and paint and so forth. First, obviously, with the birds, the famous birds of America that everybody knows from Audubon. But by this point, they were working on a new publication, a new project, which had a really catchy title, The viviparous quadrupeds of North America. (laughs) And viviparous means like giving birth to live young? Very good. That's exactly what it means. Wow. Wow. I'm impressed. (laughs) Dude. As opposed to oviparous, which means, you know, you lay eggs. But in 1849, an opportunity opened up for the son, at least, John Woodhouse Audubon, to go all the way to the West Coast, collect all of his specimens and paint all the mammals that he would want, Because in 1849, there was a lot of traffic going from the East Coast to the West Coast. Gold rush. Gold rush, exactly, right. Gold had been discovered in 1848. News got back East. So everybody in 1849, the 49ers, wanted to get to that gold as quickly as possible. And, of course, before the railroad, there weren't many good routes to get out there. Most people who did it would go to a place like Independence, Missouri, and then wait for the uh, weather to be just right so that they could make it safely across the Rockies without ending up like the Donner Party. (laughs) And so that required leaving in... In fairness, that was the Sierra Nevada. Right. So they had to get through all the mountain passes. But other people had other ideas for how to get there. You know, you could go by ship all the way around the tip of South America and come back up again. That's a very long and treacherous trip. You could also try to get down to the Isthmus of Panama before there was a canal. You'd have to hike through the jungle and catch a steamer on the other side to get you up to San Francisco. Now, Audubon hooked up with an expedition set up by Colonel Henry Livingston Webb. He was a colonel in the Mexican War. So he was familiar with northern Mexico. He was able to convince his investor buddies in New York that he could get out there quicker than these other 49ers and get to the gold faster by stagecoach to Pittsburgh than they would get on steamboats down the Ohio River, the Mississippi River, which would get them to New Orleans. Then you catch a steamer across the Gulf of Mexico to the mouth of the Rio Grande. Then you have to hike overland through these trails in northern Mexico, which eventually hooks you up into sort of, you know, the Arizona area. Then you get to San Diego. It was the original World Wide Web. (laughs) 
Well, it was a complete disaster <laughs> from beginning to end, pretty much. These people of the 19th century America were so intrepid. I mean, I'm just trying to get my head around the idea of being the younger Audubon and going through this in order to sketch pictures of uh, mammals of the West. <laughs> I, yes. I, I mean, sometimes I can't be bothered to go downstairs to feed myself because I'm not hungry enough to justify the trek down a flight of stairs. It's just kind of inspiring and genuinely mind-boggling the trouble that they went to. So by the time that they got to the mouth of the Rio Grande, people were already completely sick of this whole <laughs> this whole trip. Most of their money had been stolen. People were catching cholera. And so 20 of them just said, forget it, we're out of here, we're going home. The rest of them were like, we don't want to continue with Colonel Webb. Colonel Webb says, okay, I'm out of here too, ends up taking some of the remaining money, which leaves our naturalist, John Woodhouse Audubon, in charge, still having to get across northern Mexico. And by this point, they're losing precious time. Spring is turning into summer, which means they're going to have to like hit the desert when it's summertime. So everything is pretty much going wrong for poor Mr. Audubon. All for some sketches. (laughs) All for some sketches, exactly. So in June of that year, in 1849, he's making his way through northern Mexico with the remaining people from this expedition, the ones who haven't given up. And he's going through a town called Cerro Gordo, which he describes as a miserable den of vagabonds with nothing to support it but its petty garrison of 150 cavalry mounted on mules. We were hooted and shouted at as we passed through and called gringos, etc. And you can imagine what these guys must have looked like at this point. Right, but he said they were called gringos, which they took to be yes. an insult. But why? It might not have had anything to do with them being northerners or them being white. It could have to do with them looking haggard. Yeah. Maybe gringo is just Spanish for douchebag. The man who <laughs> hey, look risked at these his life bags. for sketches. <laughs> <laughs> look at these douchebags coming into town. Look at those guys with the cholera. <laughs> So, you know, Audubon actually did make his way through Mexico. He actually made it to San Diego. The men who were left on this expedition went by land or by sea all the way up to San Francisco, and they got there awfully late, later than everybody else, (laughs) as it turns out. Um, Audubon wasn't actually interested in the gold anyway. Of course, he just wanted to, you know, paint his mammals. Please tell me we got some good sketches out of this. Well, I wish I could tell you that. There are very few left from that, even though he had done, you know, hundreds of sketches and paintings. He had to leave most of them behind when he headed back east in 1850. It's kind of a very sad story. So we're kind of right back where we started. It is not neutral. You've got a citation in 1849, which means it must have been fairly common usage for some time before 1849. Certainly not entirely novel. But we're no closer to knowing. Yeah, we're no closer (laughs) to knowing what the etymology is. Okay, well, it took a few decades before people started really trading stories about where this word came from. And the story about the Green Grow the Rushes O song, the first example that I've been able to find where that's being traded as this is where the word comes from was from a newspaper article that appeared both in the Los Angeles Times and the Arizona Weekly Citizen from Tucson, Arizona, from November of 1883. The telling of that story that really got it in circulation happened a few years later in 1886 by a writer who is rather famous, the writer who went by the name Nellie Bly. 
Hmm. Journalist. Yeah. So, you know, Bob, I'm sure, can regale us with tales of Nellie Bly from the history of investigative journalism. Oh, I could go on and on and on and on and on. <laughs> Bob dated her. <laughs> <laughs> we should probably not hear those stories. Though. <laughs> well, good old Nellie that Bly, fiction. before she had really, <laughs> really made a name for herself, you know, she started off in Pittsburgh. And the first newspaper that she wrote for was the Pittsburgh Dispatch. She was very young and a real go-getter and really wanted to make a name for herself, even though women were obviously not typically considered to be doing the kind of investigative journalism that she wanted to do. And they just wanted her to report on, you know, women's issues, that sort of thing. She decided at the age of 21, she was going to go to Mexico for six months and send back dispatches about her time there, describing life there, the rather corrupt government of the time. And so she's sending back these reports that were published in the Pittsburgh Dispatch and then picked up by other newspapers all around the country. And she says, you know, people often wonder, this is from September of 1886 when she was writing this in the Pittsburgh Dispatch, people often wonder and ask why the Mexicans call the Americans a gringo or what the word means. That can be explained when the Americans went to war with Mexico, a melody, every verse of which ended with Green Grow the Rushes O, was very popular. It pleased almost everybody's fancy and was sung by old and young. While in camp, the soldiers would sing it constantly, and all the Mexicans could hear was Green Grow the Rushes O. They immediately began to call the American soldiers by the first two words as it sounded to them, Green Go. They made it into one word by which they will ever know the American mm. Green may, may I just jump in with a question? Yes. Ben? What the fuck is the origin of gringo? Well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Because there was another writer for another paper, the Washington Evening Star, which said, no, Nellie Bly doesn't know what she's talking about. That's not where the word gringo comes from. But then, you know, the explanation that he comes up with in 1889 is just about the green coats, the one that Bob mentioned earlier, saying that there was a Kentucky regiment stationed in Mexico during the war that wore green coats, and that's where it came from. So all of these stories were circulating in the 1880s, but, you know, you got to leave it to the lexicographers, the etymologists, the philologists to tell you the real story rather than just the yeah, journalists you can get who them didn't know to. what they were talking if about. If you can get them to. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I just want to spin this out in an enjoyable way for you, Bob. The foreplay is delicious. So the first dictionary in English that includes the word gringo is a great dictionary, the Century Dictionary and Encyclopedia, which was published by the great American philologist William Dwight Whitney. The entry with gringo was published in 1889, and he ignores all of those popular stories. The etymological note that he gives there is, it's a Spanish word for gibberish, probably a popular variant of griego, meaning Greek. Mm. It's Greek to me! Exactly. Exactly. So, in fact, if you look in Spanish dictionaries, which none of these journalists had bothered to do, to see how this word gringo had been... Yeah, exactly. (laughs) This word gringo had actually been in Spanish dictionaries all the way back to the late 18th century. There is a dictionary of Castilian Spanish, as published in 1787, which explains this term gringo. And it says that it's being used in Spain in the 1780s. Okay, so this is before the word gets imported to Latin America. It's being used in Spain, as the dictionary says, 
in Malaga, a town in the south of Spain, it said that gringo was used for foreigners who have a certain type of accent, which keeps them from speaking Spanish easily and naturally, that they were called gringos. Then it said in Madrid, it was also being used for the Irish in particular, for the same reason. Now, why were they talking about the Irish in Madrid? Well, it turns out that the Irish had quite a presence in Spain through the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries because of this alliance that Ireland had made with Catholic Spain. There were Irish soldiers, historically they were called the wild geese, who came from Ireland and were serving in regiments in the Spanish army all through this period. So they were pretty familiar with these Irish who are coming into Spain. And, and speaking gibberish. Speaking gibberish, right. This exactly. is quite a paradox. A moment ago, I was remarking on how intrepid were these adventurers who would go through the expense and extraordinary labor and danger of traveling from east to west by these crazy routes just to draw pictures of, I don't know, mountain cats. And from this same class of people, we find... <laughs> those who were too lazy to look up a word in a dictionary and instead <laughs> spun these ridiculous folk tales about the provenance of gringo. All they had to do was pick up a dictionary. Well, they were probably so culturally arrogant that it maybe didn't even occur to them that they had dictionaries in these other languages. They got cholera in swamps to sketch <laughs> animals and they didn't pick up a dictionary. It's crazy. So this idea that gringo comes from the Spanish word griego, meaning Greek, is certainly the likeliest explanation, and, and it's made its way throughout Latin America with those meanings. It's nothing specific to Mexico. That just so happens to be where Americans heard it, but it was already present in you know, other places that Spain had colonized. Are there other examples, and do we have reason to believe that an N can make its way into Spanish words so that it then changes its pronunciation? I think that's one of the arguments is the phonological question of uh, how easily could griego get changed into gringo. There's a vowel in there that's getting nasalized. Mm -hmm. From what I've read, it's plausible, and especially because the two words seem to appear in very similar context. So, hablar griego, you're speaking Greek, just as we would say in English, it's all Greek to me. Spanish had a very similar expression, and then gringo could actually fill that same slot to refer to unintelligible gibberish. It's funny that Greek turns out to be a multicultural default for obscure language. It's not that obscure compared to, I don't know, Hungarian or something. It should really be it's all Hungarian to me, in my view. Well, actually, the it's all Greek has different variations in other languages and other cultures. Isn't that right, Ben? That's right. In fact, Mark Lieberman, one of my colleagues on the group blog Language Log, did a very nice flowchart which kind of showed which languages are considered unintelligible to speakers of other languages. You see various arrows pointing to Greek from European languages like English and Spanish. Most of the arrows are actually pointing to Chinese. Chinese is sort of considered the quintessential unintelligible language. But the best guess for why English speakers or Spanish speakers were holding up Greek as this unintelligible language goes back to the medieval days of monks who were transcribing 
Latin manuscripts, and very often those Latin manuscripts would have bits of Greek in them. But if the monks were not very up on their Greek scholarship, they would not be able to transcribe the Greek letters of those Greek passages, and so they would just write in Latin, Graecum est non legitur, this is Greek, it cannot be read. I feel as though I wended across <laughs> northern Mexico following the Rio Grande, eventually to achieve San Francisco, and then I had to go home again right away and lost all of the work I gathered during the trip. I'm glad you were able to accompany me on this etymological <laughs> journey, and I hope you didn't catch cholera on the way. All right. Well, if you want to tell us about your travels, gringo or whatever the opposite of a gringo is, a local, a... A native and intelligible interlocutor. Yes. That's the opposite of gringo, yes. an intelligible domestic interlocutor. Right. A linguistic compatriot. Took the words right out of my mouth. Tell us all about your travels at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Please follow us on Twitter at lexiconvalley and subscribe to our feed in the iTunes store. Thank you, Ben, for another fascinating tale. You can read more about the word gringo on Ben's Word Roots column at vocabulary.com. Joel Meyer is our managing producer and Andy Bowers, our executive producer. All right, we done here? Yep, we're done. Hasta la vista, Gators. Green grow the lilacs all sparkling with you. I'm lonely, my darling, since parting with you. And by the next meeting I hope to prove true And change the green lilacs to the red, white and blue